Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I listen to podcasts every day on the bus ride home from school, and getting a gastropod podcast to pop up on my app is like finding an unexpected piece of chocolate cake in the fridge. Delightful. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Welcome to Gastropod. We are your bi-weekly slice of chocolate cake. I'm Cynthia Graber, and that was one of our lovely listeners, Amanda Cronin. And I'm Nicola Twilley, and we're the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. Our episode today is sponsored by Hampton Creek, a technology company that is pioneering the food space. You can find them at your local Whole Foods, Target, or Walmart. Today, it's one of the episodes where, you know, we're not going to take a deep dive into one particular topic. Instead, we're going to tell a couple of different stories about plants. We're talking about crazy potatoes and extreme salads. Our second guest actually made a salad out of 537 plants. For real, 537 different plants. Now, I eat pretty widely, Nikki, and I am not sure that I have ever eaten that many different plants in my entire life. Well, me either. I mean, you can't find that many at the grocery store. And now on to our first guest this episode. His name is Ferris Jaber. He's a science reporter, and we're proud to say he's also a gastropod listener. He received the UC Berkeley Food and Farming Fellowship last year, and he reported a long, in-depth story all about potatoes. So if you're wondering how anyone could write 3,000 words about something that is basically just a vehicle for butter, cream, oil, maybe some sour cream, well, I feel you. This is pretty much my relationship with the potato, too, which is why Ferris's story, it's called Reinventing the Potato, and it was published by Modern Farmer magazine. It's why Ferris's story is such an eye-opener. And I particularly loved it because he does a bunch of his reporting in Peru. It's the original home of the potato, and I'm kind of obsessed with Peruvian food. I was there a few years ago myself to report a bunch of stories. I didn't cover the potato, but I did cover a bunch of other roots and tubers. They had names like Oyuca and Mashua, and they came in these insane colors. I have uh, photos that I'll put up at gastropod.com. And so I, I actually was jealous of Ferris. He got to go to this huge food festival in Lima. It's called Mistura. And he ate an insane variety of potatoes. We wouldn't even recognize them as potatoes here. 
first of all, they were all different shapes. So not just round, but like, you know, as long and as narrow as cucumbers. Some of them really looked like croissants because they kind of have like a, a curved horn shape to them. Some of them had like the kind of ruffles you would see on a pine cone. And then the colors ranged from like incredibly deep yellows, like canary yellow to really beautiful um, dark indigos and blues and reds and pinks and violets. And then when you cut into them or once you know, somebody slices them open for you, you see these really incredible patterns, sort of like splashes, almost floral patterns, things that look like the inside of geodes, you know, when you smash them open. Um, and then so I bought a couple bags and, and to actually cook them and try them. And the one that really stuck with me tasted exactly like a roasted chestnut. Another was really like caramelized beets. And then really surprising to me was that some of them had almost sweet, like a floral or sweet flavor to them, like kind of like a strawberry or peach. And you could even smell that when, when you're cooking them and you sort of get hit with the, the vapors from a, from a boiling pot or, or the steam from inside an oven. You can, you can detect those sweet notes. Mm, but it sounds amazingly delicious. I know. You're making me drool. Why are there so many different potato varieties in Peru? Um, the potato became a really important staple crop in the, in the Andes many thousands of years ago. And in the Andes, you have this really diverse um, series of microclimates where you can't rely on just one kind of potato or um, to, to grow well in every different little patch on these mountains. So they, they you know, the, um, the, the Peruvian's ancestors would sort of diversify um, and just grow many, many different kinds of potatoes. And I think it also, though, has to do with the potato's genetics because so plants in general tend to have incredibly large sort of sprawling genomes that are like many times the size of animal genomes. And, um, you know, the more genes you have, the more potential for diversity you have in there. And so when you cross different kinds of potatoes, you often get this like this wild carnival of of different children that look nothing like the parents. Um, so there's a there's a lot of potential there for mixing and matching and coming up with new kinds of potatoes that haven't existed before. So what happened when the potato got to us? I mean, why? Why don't we have such great potatoes? So one of the things I found most curious is that we used to, like, if you if you look at sort of the really early days of potato farming and sort of vegetable farming in America, there actually was um, quite a lot of diversity, certainly a lot more than there is now. And there's this amazing book called The Vegetable Garden. It's sort of an illustrated text you know, about vegetable farming in America and Europe in the, in the 19th century. And so if you sort of going through that, you can see all these like crazy, really bizarre potatoes that resemble the ones I saw in Peru. And then what happened is that sort of a combination of McDonald's and fast food um, and industrial agriculture more generally kind of just really homogenized um, potatoes in America because uh, in order to make a French fry, you have to have like a very certain kind of potato, which is basically the russet Burbank. It's this long, pale, kind of hearty potato that can be shipped really long distances across the country, and it can be stored for a really long time, and it will still make good French fries. So a lot of farmers sort of switched over to just growing a ton of russet Burbank. And then it so happened that, you know, the russet Burbank worked pretty well in the home kitchen, too. It, it It's not as good as, you know, the Yukon Gold or a lot of other varieties, but it was okay. So it was just easier for farmers to just grow russet at Burbank and sell that to both the potato um, processors and people who are buying potatoes for the fresh market. And then the only reason the Yukon Gold is around is because like in the 80s and 90s, 
um, some researchers in Canada were sort of like, well, let's try something different and actually introduce it to the mass market. And they came up with the Yukon Gold. And it only took off after um, restaurants in California sort of caught on to its creamy kind of nice yellow color and its really creamy texture, which was like great for mashed potatoes. As opposed to like apples and pears, where like a lot of people know like the specific cultivar names, and you know this apple is good for baking or this one's good for eating fresh. We we don't really have that same sort of respect or uh, attitude towards a potato. We we mostly you know Russet Burbank and Yukon are really the only specific names that that most people know. That's so true. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about going to the grocery store, and and the only thing I know to look out for is a is a Yukon Gold mm-hmm. or maybe some like pretty little red potatoes or purple potatoes, but they don't have names. Right. It's interesting. So in in our second ever episode of Gastropod, we were talking about the lost apples of America and the fruit detectives that have been trying to track them down. And then this amazing catalog, actually, the, the illustrated history of apples in North America that lists... I think like 17,000 plus varieties that used to grow here. Mm-hmm. And apple varieties, like you say, I mean, they're having a bit of a revival at the moment. And you can find lots more heirloom varieties in the store, but you can also find breeders developing new ones for flavor rather than just, oh, it ships well and it, you know, high yield. Is there a, is there a potato equivalent of this movement? I think, yeah, I think it's it's just sort of starting to get its start now, um, at especially at the University of Wisconsin, um, and also at Cornell University in New York. So there's a there's a potato breeder, Shelley Jansky at, at Wisconsin, and she's really intently focused on potato flavor and like really bringing flavor to the forefront of what what she does. And she's just really appalled by how potato breeders in general don't think of flavor, not because they don't want to, but because they have so much pressure to focus on, you know, disease resistance and, and general hardiness and not worry so much about the color, textures and, and the taste of potatoes. So she and her colleagues have been like, um, kind of the same way as happened for apples. They've been like rounding up these really interesting heirloom varieties, you know, going through seed banks, looking for any varieties of potatoes that would have more interesting flavors than the ones we have now. And they've been growing them in some plots out in Wisconsin. And um, and trying to create you know new hybrids that taste great but are, are just as hardy as the as the sort of russet Burbank, and then uh, at Cornell um, there's another uh, potato breeder and researcher who's really interested in the genetics underlying color, um, Walter DeJong, and he's he's um he's figured out a lot of the you know the genes that result in the red yellows and blues and even some of the interesting color patterns, and then so once researchers have sort of understand the genetics of that in you know in more detail they can start looking at the dna inside seeds and really young plants and then they can make a lot smarter choices about um which potato plants to cross you know that will give them the sort of colors and textures and flavors that they want so i think it is it is starting and um also you know so the other thing is like around the country there are these really immense potato growers and processors just 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 sort of handle these enormous volumes of potatoes and you really kind of have to get them on your side if you want to see um, these potatoes you know in supermarkets nationwide and not just sort of at farmers markets here and there and so they also seem to be starting to get you know starting to get interested in in these more flavorful and interesting potato varieties um, and they're, so they're experimenting with sort of pink potatoes, you know, and, and potatoes that you're, you're supposed to just steam in their skins because they're like really small and, and colorful. And, and so they seem to be uh, um, getting into that sort of whole trend as well. 
when I go to the farmer's market, I, I can find other kinds of potatoes. They have purple ones. They have some red ones. You know, there's purple flesh. But it's, as you say, it's not easy to find at a grocery store, although it sounds like perhaps we're going to start seeing some more exciting varieties. Mm-hmm. When I bring all those potatoes home, I tend to chop them kind of equa-size, throw them into a steamer and sort of steam them all together. But they take different times to cook. I'm, I'm wondering, I don't think I'm doing it right. If you were going to recommend how our listeners could do a taste test if they found different kinds of potatoes, mm-hmm. what do you think they should do? What I would recommend is, is just, you know, paying attention to the names of the potatoes you buy, maybe putting in a little time to like do a little bit of extra research the way you might with apples or pears if you were going to cook them to find out, you know, what that particular potato is, is good for. Um, and then, you know, you could have an all potato feast party with your friends where you could invite a bunch of people over and try a bunch of different potatoes at once. I did that a couple of times in the course of my reporting. A couple, a few varieties that I think are somewhat easier to find that, that I really liked are the Adirondack red and blues, um, which true to their name are mm-hmm. really these really gorgeous deep blues and reds all, all the way through. There's also a couple of paler varieties. There's the, um, the German butterball is a real favorite of potato farmers. And some of them told me that they don't, they almost don't want people to know about it because they love to sort of grow it for themselves and their families. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> they want to see yeah. them. And they're, they're like, they're, they're somewhat like Yukon Golds, but even, even more buttery um, and a really nice yellow color. Um, so yeah, I think they're, you know, I think they are out there and, and you can find them at farmers markets and you can also look in the, um, not so much the the uh, the produce aisle of the supermarkets, but in the frozen aisle where some of these big potato processors have started packaging these more interesting varieties as as frozen chopped up potatoes. I think the idea of a potato tasting party sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, but but really, what I want to do is go to Peru and taste the ones you tasted. Do you do you feel sad sometimes <laughs> knowing that like the the wonder of potato is is out of reach in the US? Yeah, I think another um I also briefly talked to some um chefs at Peruvian restaurants in New York and they say that they do um they do try to import potatoes from there because they really miss them and they want to work with the real thing. And then one of my friends, he sent me a link to an article about somebody who was busted for bringing a bunch of Peruvian potatoes through the airport without like clearing it first. It. So there wow. are definitely <laughs> there are people out there who really like them and and are trying a whole bunch of different things to get them over here. Yeah, you know, I know there are all kinds of good logical phytosanitary reasons against this, but I'm telling you, I would totally smuggle those potatoes into the country. Chestnut-flavored potatoes? I think it's time for us to take a gastropod trip to Peru. You in? Oh, yeah. Pledge drive coming up, listeners. Be warned. Awesome. (laughs) Next, you will hear from the Extreme Salad Man. But first, our sponsor this episode. Okay, so as we said at the beginning... Hampton Creek is our sponsor for this episode of Gastropod, and I am very happy about that for quite a few reasons. One of the main ones is that I get to eat cookie dough from a jar by the spoonful on air. And you are not going to get salmonella because the deal with Hampton Creek just cookie dough is that it has no eggs. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Are you eating that right now? (laughs) How is it? Delicious. Okay, enough eating. What's the deal with Hampton Creek? So it's really interesting. They're redesigning food from scratch to use plant ingredients instead of animal ingredients. 
The whole idea is that way it's healthy, it's much more sustainable, and it's still affordable. So they started with eggs because a third of eggs are not used as eggs. They're used for qualities like binding or browning, like in cookies. And and how are they figuring out how to replace eggs? This is the cool part. They're building the world's largest plant database. So the idea is they can scan the whole world of plants and they'll find ingredients that have exactly the right molecular weight and particle size and functionality and all that to take the place of eggs. In the cookie dough, they're using sorghum. In the mayonnaise, which is their second product, they're using this Canadian yellow pea protein. Fascinating. Now excuse me while I go back to stuffing my face. (laughs) Enjoy that cookie dough. You can find Hampton Creek at Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, and maybe even your local grocers, too. They have a handy guide for finding it in your zip code at hamptoncreek.com. One more quick note before our second interview of the episode. We're putting out a fresh episode in two weeks' time all about cheese. And we want your stories. We know you have an opinion about cheese. What cheese do you love? What cheese do you hate? Did you um, accidentally, I don't know, pour shredded cheese into a dish that was destined for a vegan friend? Send us your cheesiest confessions. And actually, while we're talking about hearing from you guys, our breakfast show is still sparking some serious debate and heated opinions. Hi, this is Tom Ulrich, a gastropod listener from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm here with my son, Zach, who has a comment to make for Cynthia about her love of bok choy for breakfast. Zach, what, what did you want to say to Cynthia? What was your comment? It sounds yummy, but for breakfast, it's weird. And that's all we've got. Thanks very much. Great show. Thank you, Zach. I agree 100%. Um, we think we have some listeners who are old enough to vote. I hope so. We're not sure. Adults and, of course, kids, you're still welcome. Please call in with your cheese stories in the next couple of weeks. 310-876-2427. Or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at contact at gastropod.com. And now, Extreme Salad Man. Whose real name is actually Stephen Barstow, somewhat less glamorously. He's the author of a new book, Around the World in 80 Plants, and it's an introduction to his favorite 80 edible perennials. So, Cynthia, they say never judge a book by its cover, but the cover of this has a photograph of a salad that is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. There's red, violet, lilac, mauve, Pink, purple, yellow, edible flowers, 537 different plants. It's one of Stephen's extreme salads. And this was inspired by knowledge of similar multi-species dishes in the Mediterranean countries. We all know about the the Mediterranean diet and how uh, people, old people living in uh, isolated villages in the Mediterranean countries had very low levels of uh, heart disease and that kind of thing. And as a result of that, scientists uh, working, or ethnobotanists, got quite a lot of money to study what these people actually were eating or what they had eaten. And over the course of the last 15, 20 years, they've discovered uh, that uh, uh, there are around 3,000 different species of plants which were used in the Mediterranean countries alone. Huge wow. number. Wow. And in addition to that, they found they discovered these multi-species dishes, which were often made in the springtime. They could be salads, they could be soups. They could uh, have one in the book, a um, a um, what do you call it? Uh, oh, you're a calzone. Yeah, a calzone. Yeah, a calzone. Yeah. 
<laughs> which was uh, I found a, a recipe for that calzone in um, from Sicilia, and uh, it had uh, 50 species of plant in it. That calzone took me six years to to make because I first had to grow those 50. That sounds like the longest dinner. The dinner yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it also sounds like more vegetables than I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, anyway, so these salads were inspired by these multi-species dishes of the Mediterranean countries. I thought, well, I, I can do that. You know, I've got a huge collection of uh, edibles. Why not try and put together a, a world record? And the first one was 360 different plants. And the, the second one I made in 2003 um, had, as you mentioned, 537 different plants. And then they really are beautiful. We'll, we'll put uh, pictures online for you listeners. Um, one thing from the book is that it's easy, and from talking to you, that it's, it's easy to tell that you... You love the history behind the plants almost as much as the as the taste. It may sometimes more than the taste. So I love the story about the roof onion. Can you tell us about these these I guess they're the the early version of a rooftop vegetable garden in Norway? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, here in Norway we have we we have the original rooftop gardens, <laughs> veggie gardens. On the, you know, it's become very popular as you say in in recent years. But in, in Norway, in, uh, we have this valley between uh, Oslo, the capital, and Trondheim, where I live. And in that valley, there are a lot of old farm buildings which still still exist, old wooden, often with uh, these uh, turf roofs. And in one area, they planted this onion. We call it uh, Welsh onion or Allium fistulosum. It has nothing to do with Wales. Welsh is a German corruption, meaning foreign. And this particular onion originated in Siberia. So it's uh, extremely hardy. And uh, it was planted on on the roofs, uh, both as a a protection against uh, fire, because the leaves are succulent. And uh, also they they would harvest the uh, young onions in the springtime. Um, on the roof, the farm animals could get at, get at them, and uh, they just had to go up and, and, and harvest. And, and, and these onions have been there for so long. I mean, they're not Norwegian originally. They, they have come from uh, the Far East, but um, they've probably been in Norway for, for quite a few hundred years. And because the uh, environment on these roofs is so special in that it's uh, extremely dry in the summer and extremely cold in the winter, these onions have developed in such a way that certain botanists believe that uh, a new species has arisen. A lot of the plants that you grow and you write about are ones that we often think of as weeds. Uh, Japanese knotweed is one of them, and it's an invasive nightmare. I've seen it grown insanely fast and strong, even in my neighborhood here in New England. You describe it as a gourmet delight. And then and then you also talk about native species. Here in the U.S., there's hogweed and cow parsnip, and you make them sound delicious. This is a There are some popular foods for Native Americans. Yeah, they were lucky. I mean, <laughs> they knew about these things, you know. But uh, I, I, I remember getting a book uh, called Wild Food, written by a guy called Richard Phillips. It was in an English uh, foraging book back in the in the eighties, and he described uh, the hogweeds as the most delicious vegetable he'd ever ever tasted, and that they wow. would uh, surprise even the most conservative of um, of your friends. 
And he's absolutely right. But uh, when I uh, when I got this book, my Norwegian foraging book said it was poisonous. <laughs> and uh, it took me a very long time to uh, to get the courage up to try it. But um, <laughs> but uh, you know, after after studying native uh, traditions around the world and and finding that, you know, as you say, the Native Americans they would they would travel for days to patches of uh, of hogweed to harvest it in the spring. It was very important. Wow. And it's delicious as well. You know, speaking of hogweed, my family roots are in the shtetls of Eastern Europe, and that means borscht, which many listeners probably know of as cold beet soup. But did, did you say the original ingredient might have been hogweed? Yeah, it was. It was hogweed. The, the, the word borscht actually means hogweed. That's amazing. Wow. And uh, because uh, beetroot has only been around for a couple of hundred years, before that, it was, uh, it was a hogweed soup. You know, Cynthia, one of the other interesting things in the book is that he talks about growing plants we usually think of as wild, like ones that people go out and forage. And some of them are plants I, I can't wait to eat here, especially this winter, this snow. I'm telling you, I, I don't think I can take it anymore. Um, he grows things like fiddleheads, and, and those are some of the first signs of spring in New England. But what's interesting is the more popular these forage plants get, the more pressure there is on them and their habitat. So growing them is kind of a good idea. I mean, first of all, it means that he has all the ingredients for an extreme salad about 20 foot from his dinner table. And then it's kind of, it's interesting. It's sort of the first step toward domestication. Right. He writes about this in his book. There there are groups of people like him, these kind of extreme gardeners, and, and they're starting to deliberately breed these foraged plants in their gardens. It's fascinating stuff. You can read more about it in his book, Around the World in 80 Plants. And one other thing, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but it always blows my mind. Humans have grown 7,000 different species of plants for food over the course of human history. And now we rely on just four. Four plants make up 60% of our calories. It's completely insane. It makes his 537 plants seem like nothing. I personally want to taste those thousands of plants. Right. I know for the UN and all of those kinds of organizations, it's all about biodiversity. But for me, it's like, think of the flavors. And that is it for this week. Come back next time for Cheese. Thanks this week to the sponsor of the show, Hampton Creek, a technology company that is pioneering in the food space. And if you're interested in sponsoring a future episode of Gastropod, email us at contact at gastropod.com. And all of you great listeners, young and old alike, email us. We love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook. Or on Twitter at Gastropodcast. Till next time. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.